Hello and welcome to At Home with Ashley G. I'm Ashley Gronwald, a real estate agent, mother of three, living in Raleigh, North Carolina with my husband Jed. I hope you'll join me as we discuss all things that begin in the home, such as family, marriage, faith, parenting, organizing, and plus a sprinkle of real estate. I look forward to building a community with you as we navigate the joys of owning a home and making it our safe haven for our family. Because home is where it all begins. Hi everyone, this is Ashley Gronwald with Hunter Row Real Estate, and I'm joined by Krista Dunham, which is the author of this amazing book called Table for Two. And I asked her if she would join me today just to discuss her journey through an eating disorder and recovery on the other side. And so her story is amazing. I would encourage anybody to pick up this book because I really just impact it impacted me in a huge way. And so I just feel so privileged, Krista, to be able to sit with you now and just talk to you. Because I felt like we talked for the couple of days that I read your book, but now I get to <laughs> talk to your face. And um, I know there's a lot of people who are going to really appreciate what you have to say. So thanks for being here with me first off. Oh, thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you want to tell us just a little bit about you before I dive into this book and some questions for you? Yeah, I live with my husband um, close to Detroit, and we both are counselors. We've gotten really involved in biblical counseling, um, just through some through my experience, but just some through the leading of God, just in this direction. It's been a great privilege to be able to help other people as I'm learning and growing myself. That's awesome. So this book, just for anyone who hasn't read it yet, is a book that you and your husband, David, co-authored together, wrote it from the perspective of biblical counseling background, but also for people who are struggling with an eating disorder and their spouse's perspective too, which is one I had never heard before. Hearing your husband's perspective of living with you or even in your dating lives before you got married and how this affected the relationship. So I think that was really helpful perspective because um, I think those of us who are in it can't see the the ripple effect of the people around us. And you speak to that in the book as well. So this is such um, a unique book that I haven't quite experienced yet in my journey. So one thing you said early on in the book was eating disorders parallel addictive habits or addictive type of personality struggles. So can you share a little bit of how that parallel or comparison is? Yeah, I think something that I really didn't realize as I was going through it is that some of the eating behaviors can actually change the the chemistry of what's going on in your brain, um, which is the same as what's going on, um, you know, when you drink alcohol or take drugs, you know, repeatedly to deal with harmful situations in your life. So um, some of that is going on that I didn't really realize. Um, it also just is a way that you that you go about coping with things that are, are going wrong in your life or just ways that you have learned to, to deal with, with things going on in your life. Yeah, an eating disorder is just the same sort of pattern of behavior. Um, and I, I think just going through it, I, I noticed some of those links, but coming out of it, you know, and really studying it, I've, I've realized that there are actually more links than I, than I understood as I was going through it. Yeah. I don't know that. I think what you're seeing when you're in it is very skewed from the reality once you're able to look back, which I think that's the encouraging message, kind of spoiler alert, but an encouraging message that you are on the other side looking back 
saying, here's what I struggled with. And I mean, at one point you do say that the the journey was frustrating, recovery was long, it was hard. It, you know, it, it wasn't just a one and done, have this rev revolutionary thought that changed your way and all of a sudden now it's easy. But it what is encouraging is that you are on at least the other side looking back and now helping others who are in a similar spot. So I think mm -hmm. that's awesome. The other part that I thought was really interesting was um, you and your husband talk about the five common motives underlying an eating disorder. And the five, I wrote them down, control, self-medication, appearance, pride, punishment. I, I don't know that you want to go through all of those or if you do, but like talk a little bit, elaborate on those points. Cause I think that for some people that, I mean, appearance seems obvious, but maybe not. Um, control seems obvious to me, but maybe not the self-medication or the pride, how much pride under, you know, underscores a eating disorder and then punishment. Could you speak to maybe a couple of those? Yeah. So um, definitely we talk a lot about the control issue because that's that was my underlying motive. I just I went through a car accident, as I mentioned in the book, and I just could feel that lack of control like that. Um, I couldn't control whether I would live or I would die. And um, as I tried to face life after that, I, I didn't like that feeling of not being able to control things. And I could see some of those patterns even early on, you know, in my childhood that I just, I liked things to be exactly so. And that was just the first time in my life where things felt really, really out of my control. Um, but yeah, some of the, I think, yeah, a lot of people associate associate the um, appearance as, as something that's definitely related to an eating disorder. But um, like you were saying, there there are multiple other motives. And I think one that um, that really stood out to me as I was studying them is is pride, because some people don't realize like that, that seems totally off the wall to say that. Um, but there is a sense and I could feel it too, as I was going through it, just um, I liked that feeling of knowing that I could do something that other people couldn't do. Mm -hmm. And I would look at other people and think, oh, I can make better choices about my food than they are. I would never look like that while I'm eating or I would, um, you know, I have much more control than they do. Um, and I would just find a sense of pride in the amount of self-control that I had. And so it is hard to see sometimes because what what you're actually seeing um, as they're talking or experiencing life is just that they they don't like themselves or they feel a lot of self-confidence issues. But sometimes when you dig down deeper, there's actually, you know, a, a sense of pride that's that's in that that's saying, well, I can do this and I can better than than other people can. And and I think some that I've experienced, you know, as people are talking to me more about what they've been through, because the book does speak a lot to my experience. And I think one thing I would really want to say is just that is my experience, like it does not cover what everyone has been through. And um, I'm finding just people telling me their stories is just, it's heartbreaking because mm -hmm. some people have had terrible things happen to them. And um, I think that's where some of the other motives come in, like punishment to think that they, um, they deserve something bad because they did something bad or yeah, just some of those work their way in when, when something bad has happened. And um, 
and it is heartbreaking. And I don't want to pigeonhole anyone into my exact experience because there are so many different ones. And I think on the self-medication motive, that kind of goes alongside the addictive behaviors. Like you think of alcohol or drugs or whatever, those are medicating coping mechanisms, just like an eating disorder. It's a coping mechanism um, to survive life or just function on a daily basis. And so this means of control can be a way of, I think you said in the book, like a numbing agent, food, you eat so much that it numbs you or you starve yourself so much that you feel in control and you don't, you know, feel the emotion or whatever you're trying to do. Um, I think that can speak to that a little bit. So one thing you said that resonated was you longed for what this eating disorder promised, which was control, acceptance, affirmation, and achievement. Yet your heart constantly cried out for an alternative. Mm -hmm. And I think in the body image, healthy living culture, we are in that idea of gaining those feelings of acceptance, control, affirmation, achievement through exercise or food can be a conflicting message or a confusing one of like, this is a good thing. I want these things and I'm going to try to achieve them. But like you said in the book, your heart was constantly crying out for an alternative. Could, could you speak to that a little bit? I mean, I think that I slightly would feel what I was looking for in those behaviors that I was doing and you could catch a glimpse of what they were promising me. Like I would start to feel in control or I would start to feel better about myself, but it would always lead down the same path of just getting kind of stuck and feeling more controlled by what I was doing than I actually felt like real control. And so I would always feel these moments of, I want out of this, but I don't know how to get out. And I don't see an alternative that would give me even this little bit of control that I feel. <laughs> so I, I don't want to let it go because then I would have what I thought was no control. So if I, if I can just hold on to this little bit, even if it's making me feel awful, then I still want to keep that because I didn't see another way that was any different. And like you said, you might have felt a little bit of control or a little bit of affirmation or a little bit of achievements. So you're getting glimpses of it. So just enough to keep you on the cycle of this perpetual habit, compulsion, whatever you want to call it, but not enough to satisfy. But it keeps you going back, which I think is similar to alcohol or drugs or whatever that vice is for you. Mm -hmm. One thing you talked about that I wanted you to elaborate on is you said thinking about your particular food rules. That's the chapter you really expounded on food rules and trying to connect them to your motives can be a productive exercise. So could you give an example of what you mean by that of the food role, connecting it to your motives and how that's helpful in moving towards recovery? Yeah. So I guess something that I would have connected to um, control with my food rules was um, I always would say, even if I was allowing myself to eat, then I would always say I can never eat all of the plate or, and that was maybe even later on in what I was still doing, um, when I would actually say, okay, I, I am going to eat, um, but this is only how much I can. And it would always be that much. And so, um, I think it was helpful to see those rules and say, oh, I can definitely see how, I have to 
control the situation or um, one of the rules, you know, that I had early on was just don't eat out ever because I could feel that just that lack of control of not knowing exactly where I was going, what I would be eating um, and eating in front of people as well was just that, that lack of control of not knowing what's going to be there, what's going to be around me, who's going to be looking at me. You know, I didn't like that, that lack of, of control of the situation. And so I would try to put some of those rules into place that would say, okay, I can have this amount of control in this situation. Um, and so I think that's where I would see that connection yeah. for myself. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think the food rules, I mean, we could talk about that for so long and I want to be careful not to be triggering to people of what your food rules were and what mine are and somebody else's, but maybe taking, doing that exercise of taking a step back and just trying to connect the motive to the food role. What is the motivation behind it to see if you can try and break through that food role um, and work past it. And I remember maybe it was David in the book, just saying that he just didn't understand why going out to eat was such a big deal for you, picking a restaurant or going to a restaurant or having a meal in public at a you know public place was just such an enormous emotional stress to you, which I can relate to. And I always say my husband loves when I'm pregnant because when I'm pregnant, all I want to do is eat out. But when I'm not pregnant, all I want to do is eat at home. Yeah. And so he loves when I'm pregnant because I'm like, let's go out to eat. For whatever reason, my food aversion is my home kitchen when I'm pregnant. So, but it, I mean, for me, it's very related to, like you said, control and um, will they have the foods that I feel safe with? And will I be able to eat enough without people noticing what I'm doing? Because I do weird, you know, all those things that manifest themselves around a meal. So one comment that I love that you made was God does not value thinness as an ideal. Then we have no right to suggest it is the most important quality to possess. Now I would say in America or in our culture and wherever we are constantly bombarded with that message that thinness is an ideal and it is a standard of living, a standard of even your level of respect is the amount um, of your ability to maintain thinness. But like you said, God does not value that. Mm -hmm. So why are we constantly pursuing that? And like you said, it, we have no right to suggest it is the most important quality to possess. Well, I think that's a problem that we see with a lot of things around us. It's not just an eating problem. It's a living problem. Mm -hmm. So um, I think I've noticed lately with just the way that I even think that I should be living in relation to to other Christians around me that, oh, it's okay if they're doing it, then I can do that too. Instead of saying, what does the word of God say that I should be doing? How, how does the Bible say that I should be living or how I should be eating? Or um, I think that was important for me to see was not just, um, can I have someone else tell me how to eat? Um, Cause that was one thing, you know, and a nutritionist was very helpful and I don't want to discount that, um, that was very helpful along the way. And um, I think there are certain behavioral things that can be um, accommodated and, and helped with, mm -hmm. um, but always in relation to how does the Bible say that I should be doing this? What should be in my heart as I'm doing this? And then what you're eating 
doesn't end up mattering as much as how you're eating or what's in your heart as you're eating. And right. so it's, it's just the same thing as you're choosing how you live your life, how you raise your kids, how, you know, all of that. Um, just writing this book has helped me with so many areas because of that reason. It's not just how should I eat or what should I eat? It's, um, you know, how should I live? And and that's what the Bible instructs us on. Yeah. And I, I just think that was a good reminder of what am I living based off of the, the cultural standard or God standard? And that's just such a good test of where our hearts are. One thing you said in the book I loved is I began my destructive eating habits by feeling like I was in control of them. I chose when and when I didn't eat. I was the master of my eating habits um, and they were the servants. But as time went on, those lines between master and servant began to blur, which I think is so helpful to think about who is in control. You know, is it us anymore or is it the food? Is it the exercise class or whatever it is? Speak about that, that, you know, that line that switched from you being the servant versus the master. Yeah. I mean, I think the Bible tells us, you know, in, in lots of different ways that, you know, you can become a master or the slave of, of many different masters. Um, it just depends on what, what you're choosing. And, um, and there really is only one choice it's between God and the world or Satan. And I think that was eye opening to me as well to just know um, when you're choosing anything that's not God, um, then it has that power to enslave you in ways that you didn't even know were possible. And so um, I think just stepping back a lot of times and, and evaluating your life in general to see what are my allegiances to? Is it is it to God? Because if not, then I'm probably serving something else that could easily ensnare me and, and trap me. And um, so that's been a good um, perspective for me to take just on various things. Um, stepping out of an eating disorder, I think, has helped me evaluate so many different things in my life and understand there really is only one true master and that's God. And if you're choosing something else, you're, you're going to get ensnared by it. Yeah. Gosh, such a good perspective to remember. And just to ask that question, am I a slave or am I master in this situation, whatever it is. And I think you could apply that to when you see something that triggers you or when you're feeling anxiety about what you think you have to do in a moment to think, am I slave or am I master in this situation? So I think that's really helpful. You'd said that eating disorders set up unrealistic life systems that always produces failure because our bodies were never meant to operate in that way. I could never arrive at the perfection that my eating disorder dictated. And I think that is an interesting thing because it's like you're always going for the next ideal. And I remember that at one season, it was like just a few more pounds. I'll be happy. I'll be done with this. I'll put it aside and I'm going to move on. And then it's like you get there and it's like, well, what's a few more? And it's the eating disorder never relents. It's constantly asking for more and it will never be satisfied. It sounds like that was your experience too. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely was. Um, yeah. So I feel like, um, you know, like I said, our bodies were not made to operate in that way. And mm -hmm. I think that was important for me to, to realize was that God made 
food and God made our bodies and he made them to work in a certain way. And so when we're trying to take over and control in a way that we weren't meant to, it's always going to fail. Our bodies are always going to cry out and say, you know, hey, this isn't the way I'm supposed to work. Um, either give me more food or, um, or you know, our bodies are going to start breaking down mm-hmm. um, because we haven't fueled them properly. There are just so many physical ailments that at the time could be attributed to my eating disorder. And even now I physically struggle with things that, that probably won't completely be well because of the way I treated my body. And those are consequences for, for doing that. And just like we were talking about, it's just our bodies were made a certain way and food was made, you know, to nourish our bodies. And when we treat it in the wrong way, then there, there are going to be problems. Right. Consequences of those. It's never God punishing, but it's consequence of those choices and that the body was never designed that way. And so when you take a really beautifully designed thing like the body and disrupt it, it, it goes into starvation mode or just your body yearning for things. And I think that's what makes sense of like, why so fearful that I can't, I'm cannot be alone with food because I don't trust myself because it's like, well, if you're, you take anybody and you starve them, they now become over aware of food and now they want it just like any diet. Now I'm not, you know, cut out sugar. Now I want sugar more than I've ever, ever wanted it. But now it's been eliminated. So it makes sense. And if you just gave your body what it wanted on a regular basis, filling it to full and nourishing it as it needs, we probably wouldn't feel this crazy, erratic, um, out of control sensation around food. Cause we're like, I don't trust myself. Well, who would, when you've robbed it of so many things it needs. Yeah. One of my favorite lines in the whole book, and I read this to um, a support group that I have that we work together through this. Um, I read it to them and just was like, this is the most beautiful thing is when you said most nights we sit down to dinner and neither of us thinks about the way things used to be. We don't think about the anxiety, the tears, the arguments or the deception. We sit with our three beautiful children. Thank God for the food before us. And then we all simply eat. And it still gives me goosebumps to just think about that because that's not quite the experience I have. And probably for a lot of people out there, even people who have never been, let's say, diagnosed with an eating disorder, but they come to the table with lots, lots of anxiety, lots of pressure, lots of expectations, lots of morality of like, depending on what I eat or how much I eat in this meal will determine my my goodness for the day, like all of those things. And I love that. Would you say that that's the the vast majority of your time is that you come to the table and that those things are behind you and you simply eat? Yeah. I mean, I think I tell people that, you know, I use the words recovery, victory, freedom, things like that. And I would, for the most part, say that's the majority of my time. Like I can go to church dinners and there are times that I think about it, but it's in a way of thinking, praise God that I can do this, like um, when I wasn't able to before. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, I don't want to paint a picture like I do not struggle anymore ever. Um, I think I think I even say this in the book that it's it's the sin that's going to be in the background of my heart. It's um, Mm -hmm. 
it's just something that I, I do have to think about, yeah. but it's in a way that says, I, I now know what triggers me to do that. I know what I have been deceived to do mm-hmm. and I can make choices based on that and mm-hmm. say, you know, I'm not going to run to food when I'm upset. I'm going to call the person that I've designated to call, or mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about my feelings, or I'm going to, you know, read the Bible and I'm going to, you know, um, know that God really hears me when I'm saying things that that hurt and um, and know that that Christ suffered, you know, so that that I can know that my suffering does actually matter. It's not it's not senseless and it, he took care of my sin and I don't have to feel guilty anymore for that. So I'm not paying for anything. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just so much that has been let go. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I have to know that it, it could be, it could be, you know, lurking around corners in my heart and, and I have to be on guard just like anybody has to for any anything that they struggle with to know this, this is what I'm capable of. And to think that I could never do it again is, is naive. And, um, but to know the kind of victory that, that um, Christ has won on my behalf, Mm -hmm. I can now say it is possible. I can have victory. And where before I would have said um, this, this looks so bleak. It looks so hopeless to me. So, yeah, I would say that is, you know, 99% 99% of the, the meals that I eat are now eaten, not even really thinking about those choices that I have to make. I, I do just eat. That's awesome. But I think that's wise to know that doesn't mean that you couldn't ever be tempted back there. I mean, God has the power to completely free you of this for the rest of your life, but there's also the possibility of being tempted back there. So not being naive or wishful thinking and not being wise to protect yourself and being on guard to those things and having accountability. Thank you for joining me today. And if you connected with something that was said, I hope you will share this with a friend, subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for sharing this journey with me at home where it all begins.